Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the podcast Three Sides with me, Aaron McLeod, where we will talk about all things that fall under the umbrellas of high performance, passion, and equality. I am so pumped for my next guest. Angela Ma Brown. She is an anti-racism, diversity, and equity consultant. She held a position of anti-racism and diversity mentor for the Vancouver School Board for seven years. She has an undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology from the University of British Columbia and a master's degree in diversity in curriculum and instruction from Simon Fraser University. She took the time to sit down with me. We talked about how to be anti-racist. I am really starting on this journey on how to educate myself, how to understand white privilege, understand the privileges that I've had my whole life that maybe I wasn't aware of before, and where uh, where to start, really. The reason I got connected with Angela in the first place is she has done two full sessions with our Canadian national women's soccer team. The first one is about how to be anti-racist, and then the second one we dove into Indigenous communities and also topics around Canada Day. So I am so honored to have her on. She just generously gave her time. She's incredible, an incredible educator, and uh, she gets into some of the details about how to have these hard, courageous conversations, how to get into an emotional space where you're able to learn and receive information. So without further ado, here's my interview with Angela. My first question is, it's like a heavy job. It's, um, you gotta have thick skin. And I guess I'm wondering how you got into this line of work in in the first place. Well, thank you, first of all, for the opportunity to speak with you. It's an honor and a pleasure. How I got into this work stems back from my own experiences of racism. So I grew up in East Vancouver, where I would say 90% at least of the student population was Asian. And then I moved to Burnaby, where I was one of two families And walking to and from school became the venue for taunting, teasing, hearing racial slurs, people telling me to go back where I came from, um, imitating my language in a gibberish kind of way. And I realized, aside from just the individual racism, I realized I wasn't reflected in the school curriculum. I wasn't reading picture books or novels that reflected me or my family. I turn on the TV and there weren't any shows that reflected my family unless they were stereotyped in a way where Asian people were owning corner stores or they had thick accents. And I started to feel invisible and I started to push my cultural identity away. And I felt this downward spiral of rejecting my culture and my heritage. And I said to my parents, we speak English in this country when they tried to urge me to go to Cantonese school. And I would surround myself with white friends and white partners until I went to university and I gravitated to learning about Northwest Coast First Nations studies. And it was, I realized after that, that my desire to learn about indigenous cultures, and it was the art that drew me initially, that desire 
actually enabled me to reacquaint myself with my my own cultural identity. And that was necessary for me to learn about a different culture and then realize the omissions and the rejection and um, that process that I was engaging in over the years. And I said to myself, there was this voice that sort of entered my mind that said, what happened to you? And I carried that with me until I went back and did my master's in diversity and curriculum and instruction, where one of my courses had me look at the racial identity development chart. And I realized at that point that I had internalized the racism I experienced and then understood what internalized racism means, which is basically developing the beliefs, actions, and thoughts um, with regards to how you've been treated in a negative way and supporting and colluding with the racism that you've experienced. And then you treat people within your own community in that same way. And so that was really powerful, uh, a very powerful racial awakening when I was in that course. And then I realized that this is something I wanted to do for, you know, as a calling that I didn't want any other child to look in the mirror and not appreciate how they looked or not valued who they were or valued any aspect of their cultural identity. And that became almost a mission and uh, the, the drive and the passion that I now have for the work. That's unbelievable. I, um, I mean, in one way, I remember when I was a kid, I was five years old and I was so passionate about sport and Wayne Gretzky was my hero. And I always say the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which that's a side note, but um, most of my heroes were male athletes. And I remember the day when I saw Elizabeth Manley skate uh, for uh, what we now call Canada, saw her skate in the 1988 Calgary Olympics. And I remember thinking for the first time, like women can be in sport as well. And it was like this moment. And I know it's it's different, but at the same time, like representation is, is huge. I know that's something people talk about a lot. Um, do you feel like it's changing? I don't know how old you are, but when you were a kid, you know, fast forward to now, are, are people of color in, in the country that is all called Canada, like experiencing, do you think it's the same? Do you think we've progressed? Do you think we've regressed? Well, over the last year, as you know, with the health pandemic, the mental health pandemic, there was a racism pandemic. Yeah. And, yeah. and I've noticed a shift absolutely in the last year with regards to organizations wanting to delve in deeper and moving away from just the one-off workshops and requesting a series of workshops. Yeah. And then that translating to some more meaningful action in terms of changing policies and practices within the organization. And that was within the last year. I would say prior to that, it's difficult to measure something like that with, in terms of whether it's improved. Right. But there, there's a, a lot of ignorance and people carry implicit biases. Yeah. And they may not have done the work that is now required by everybody because it's sort of, we're faced with it and we don't have a choice now. And I think that the, the pandemic, the, the health pandemic enabled everybody to sit in self-isolation or in lockdown for them to really think about their beliefs and their values 
And so when the lynching of Floyd occurred, there was this overwhelming questioning of, I'm not racist. Am I racist? I have black friends. I have. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't believe the overwhelming amount of people that reached out to me because somehow I had a stamp of approval to tell them they weren't racist. And they would tell me these stories of the connections they pe- that they had had with BIPOC. And I would say to them, I'd like you to take a moment to consider why you might be centering yourself in these issues. Um, I can't tell you that you're not racist. And we need to shift away from the good, bad binary of racist, not racist. Right. Because the opposite of racist is anti-racist. Right. And we get stuck with, well, I'm a good person. I'm not racist. But sometimes our desire to be seen good prevents us from doing good. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can say that I have said in the past, like, I'm not racist. And I think, especially for white people, like the R word, like being racist is the worst thing. But I, I think... I remember years ago, I was interviewing one of my good friends, her sister's husband, her sister's white, her husband's black. And I was talking about racism and, you know, like what is a white person I can do different and um, being a bit naive going into the interview. And, and he, they have four children together. And I remember him telling me that he was driving home from one of their soccer practices and got pulled over by the cops and had to basically defend the fact that the kids in the backseat were his In that moment, I thought, like, it was an epiphany for me that I, like, had actually no idea what it meant um, to be white until that that moment, the privilege that I have just by the color of my skin. And I know we're, like, born into it, but, like, like, what are your suggestions? Because I know for white people, it is something, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment and um, to go towards it. And no one wants to admit that, you know, like some people are like, you know, I haven't had a harder life and all this stuff, but like, what are your suggestions around that? Cause it's, I think it's a, it's a sensitive thing for white people. Absolutely. First people have to feel comfortable with the term white. It's a, it's an uncomfortable term, particularly if you haven't been described by your race. So those of us of color have always been described by our skin color, right. by our quote unquote race. And white people um, haven't and so that's a new term and so they feel that it's somehow derogatory but it's not it's a descriptor some people will shy away from using the term white and say Caucasian but Caucasian as you may recall reinforces that there were these distinct races of Caucasoid, Mongoloid, Negroid that was developed by Johann Blumenbach, a German anatomist that spoke about the fact that the fairer the skin, the larger the brains and so on. So we fit ourselves into these categories. And so it's okay to say white. And white privilege also is a phrase that brings discomfort because those who have lived in poverty or have lived in in the suburbs or rural setting may feel that that term doesn't fit them because they think that it may suggest they haven't had challenges in their lives. But being named with someone who has white privilege doesn't suggest you haven't had challenges in your life. It merely suggests that your challenges didn't have anything to do with your skin color. And we all have different identity characteristics. You might be marginalized for your gender, your gender identity, your ability, class, size, appearance, 
race, ethnicity, faith, religion. And so there are many ways in which we might be marginalized. But if you are a white person, then you are marginalized for your skin color. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something when I was first kind of going through this process. And, um, you know, I love the sessions that we did with you. And I think um, looking internally is always really hard. You you mentioned something about this four-step process that helps to increase understanding. Can you kind of go into depth on that? So this is from Dr. Barbara Love's work called Liberatory Consciousness. And it begins with awareness. And awareness is when we start to notice. Notice our language. Notice our behaviors, our actions. Notice when we might be using a stereotype to describe someone when we might be acting on our feelings and attitudes, our prejudiced thinking, our implicit biases. And you notice the assumptions you make about people when they walk into a room, when you go into a grocery store and you see somebody because we're flooded with these assumptions. It's a primal behavior. We survey our surroundings for the purpose of safety and it's okay to make assumptions, but it's important to check in. So I say, while we can call other people in and out, we can call ourselves in and out as well. And say, well, is that true for everybody in that group? When you start to make these sort of assumptions and stereotypes. And once you develop the awareness, typically people want to jump right to action. Especially if they attend a session that's inspiring. Now I want to go out and act. And sometimes that act can be performative. It could be sort of a savior uh, syndrome or white savior syndrome. And it isn't about the needs of the community is about the person and again centering oneself so it's important to move from awareness into analysis and that's where we do a sort of a deep dive in terms of a self-interrogation of our own biases assumptions racist discriminatory thinking and behaviors and again noticing when have I demonstrated this kind of negative unequal treatment towards people or a person And being okay, sitting with that and working through that rather than avoiding and denying. So that process takes the rest of our lives to do. We shift from analysis then to accountability, which is very linked. Once you have taken ownership of the wrongdoings, then we confess. And Ibram X. Kendi will speak about how Confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism, whereas denial is the heartbeat of racism. So once you are able to come to this place of, you know, acceptance of yourself, of what you have done, then taking ownership and being okay with having made those mistakes, because everyone is on that continuum of learning and we're moving towards that growth Um, phase, then we can work with communities and engage in those conversations and be able to support alongside. And that could be an ally who is sort of calling people in and out. Um, You can be an accomplice who is working within an organization and challenging discriminatory practices and policies or a co-resistor where you're working alongside various BIPOC communities and to find out what they need rather than determining what you think they need to provide that support. Right. That kind of listening side of things um, is really important. And I, 
like I mentioned, we do a lot of work in, in mindfulness. And what I love about the two sessions that you did is you set the stage for, I think, meaningful, open conversation. Can you kind of take me through that? Because I do think, like we kind of talked about, race can be a can be a difficult thing to sometimes talk about the prejudices, the stereotypes going towards that and and how important it is to to set a place where it's safe. Like, how do you create that safe space for people to talk about hard things? I begin every session with the four agreements of courageous conversations and that was adapted from Glenn Singleton's work. And he writes a, he wrote a book about a courageous conversations about race with Curtis Linton. And the four agreements that I invite participants to agree to are one, stay engaged, And that is really noticing when you're checking out. Sometimes our heart and our mind check out during situations um, that are complex, that are uncomfortable during sessions that, um, you know, are are very dense and emotional. And it's noticing that. So with that first agreement, I engage the participants in mindful breathing because focusing on our breath will reduce the emotional responses in our amygdala which is part of our limbic system that manages fear, danger, and threat. And when we're able to focus on our breath, we're able then to be more open to varying viewpoints and to be more empathetic and more, um, you know, vulnerable to be able to just be honest and open in our dialogue and as well as our understanding of other people's truths. The second agreement is be willing to speak your truth. And that is, an invitation for everyone to ask those hard questions, to be able to say what's on their mind without thinking, oh, how might this be perceived? Or this isn't a question that's, you know, appropriate. We have to be, again, as honest as possible. And while we're sharing our truths and our lived experiences to honor the BIPOC truths of the others in the group, the third agreement is to experience discomfort. So again, because the complex topics of racism and discrimination may elicit emotions such as shame and guilt and fear, frustration, anger, sadness, feelings we don't generally like to feel, but the optimal place of learning is on that edge. So I invite everyone to nudge yourself onto that learning edge as much as you can, but then come back to your comfort zone to find your breath, to self-regulate because going into your discomfort zone may cause you to disengage. And we would like to be present as much as possible in these sessions. And then the last one is to expect and accept non-closure. And that is really to remind everybody that because these topics are so multi-layered, complex and dense and emotional, that we can't in one session, in even five sessions, come to quick fix solutions or answers to the world's problems. This is ongoing, lifelong, life-wide life work. And that it's a commitment for us to all engage in that lifelong work and to see these training, quote unquote, I don't like to call them training, but these awareness sessions as a springboard for ongoing conversations with your community, you know, people in the workplace, players on your team, friends and family. And that's where it begins with those courageous conversations in your small circles And once you're comfortable engaging in those, then you may radiate out and speak to other people outside of your circles. I I mean, to to speak to the small circles, I think sometimes that's actually the hardest 
conversation to have because sometimes they're people you're related to, sometimes they're people that you love. And like when you're having these conversations or calling people out, do you personally go through that, the four agreements? Are you going through that whole process or is it like, cause sometimes they kind of just say something and you're like, Oh, you know, I think, I mean, I think most people have kind of witnessed you're like, Oh, that wasn't okay. But we fall silent. You know, I, I know that I'm, you know, I never want to ruffle any feathers, but it, it comes to a point where we're not saying anything is also part of the problem, right? We let it happen over and over and then it's it's accepted and that's not fine. So do you mm-hmm. give other suggestions? Like how do you be assertive and, and compassionate at the same time or just, you know what I mean? Like holding people to that standard. Because um, in a in an educational setting, I, I can see how it people are there for that purpose to 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 grow, hopefully, and to bring awareness. But when it's like the the one on one conversations, do you have any have any suggestions for those you know like intimate one on one moments where it really takes, I think, the most courage? Yes. So I facilitate sessions on active witnessing and. Sometimes silence is compliance and we have been taught to mind our own business, stay out of trouble, uh, you know, practice that code of silence and to stay safe. And it's important for witnesses to develop a repertoire of responses and a self-identity of being an active witness so that they aren't silent. And it's very typical for us to feel scared and shocked and that's debilitating when we witness something hurtful the research is saying that a witness is just as impacted as a receiver to a a hurtful harmful situation and we've had those experiences where we've witnessed something walked away and you can't unsee it can't unfeel it can't unhear it and we carry it with us so these sessions empower witnesses by teaching them who's in the witnessing triangle, so who's involved in in those incidents. So there's typically a co-witness or more. There's the receiver, the person receiving the hurt. The offender is doing the hurt. And those are the three main parties involved in the incident. And there's also external outsiders, people who weren't there at the time, but you may go to them for support and advice and guidance. And so it's giving them those four options of who to go to And then what we do is we practice by watching some scenarios and then the responses, basically there are different categories for the responses. Some may be empathic, some may be interjecting, challenging, confronting, some may be questioning validity. So there are different types of categories of how you might respond depending on who you are, your personality and your style of delivery and it's also context specific. Some situations that you find might be more dangerous or you might be the next target. You may decide not to go to the offender. You go to the receiver to support the receiver. So there are different options of, of how to respond. And the process is, I call it PART is an acronym. And P is to pause so that you notice your emotions. So you may regulate them. A is assess your safety. If it's unsafe, then I advise that people don't get involved because you will simply escalate the situation and more people get hurt. Um, so if, if it is safe, you're able to respond either in the moment or later because being an active witness doesn't mean you have to respond in the moment and it doesn't mean you have to respond right to the offender. You have options. And so you may decide, I'm going to 
go home and think about this and seek some advice and go back the next day or the next week and you're still an active witness. And the R is um, reflect on who you approach in that witnessing triangle, what you might say. And then the T is talk and tell. And that is the using the assertive statements, um, being calm, but confident. And what you want to focus on is not escalating the situation. You want to de-escalate and diffuse the situation. So there's calling in and calling out. Neither of them, one isn't more positive than the other. Calling in and calling out are two approaches. One isn't considered negative and the other positive. It is context specific. Depending on the situation, you may decide that you have the time to call someone in. So basically that means having a private conversation, having time to reflect, to seek understanding, to shift to a place where there could be a change in that person's behavior and to be able to educate is a learning opportunity. Calling out is to hit the pause button. It's interjecting in that moment to prevent further harm. That said, you may call someone out in the moment and then call them in and have that conversation. So you might use both strategies and it really depends on the situation and what you're able to do in that moment. If you feel that you can't have a conversation with somebody and they're so irate, then you may simply call them out and then support the receiver or just do something to diffuse the situation. Um, I'm so impressed with, <laughs> you've obviously done a lot of like emotional regulation and your emotional intelligence sounds like through the roof. Um, I don't process everything this way. I know in the when I was a kid, my mom was always like, you know, take 24 hours before you write that email <laughs> because I was so emotional. I'm like, okay, mom. Um, but I think it is, it's true when you come from a place of love and vulnerability and when your intention is, is good. And like you mentioned, um, being okay with the discomfort being okay to sit with the shame and embarrassment or whatever feelings you're going through, I think is important and, and hard to do, but obviously it's extremely meaningful to be able to kind of take steps forward. So just so everyone listening knows, I will be putting all of Angela's information so you can find her and get some of these wonderful sessions yourself. It's been so enlightening. Um, I just have a few more questions. I mean, I have a million questions, but I only have a little bit more time left. So, um, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, July 1st, Canada Day. And for me, someone who has represented uh, what is now known as Canada for over two decades, I have had the honor. Um, I've always been a quote unquote, very proud Canadian. And this year has been, it's, it's been a challenging year in the sense that I've had a lot of mixed emotions about it. I think when it comes to um, a lot of indigenous communities and, and a lot of the children that have been recovered uh, across what is, what is known as Canada um, and being a settler, like I'm just, I'm, I'm really learning a lot, but also um, just to kind of, you know, like all the information that you talked about as far as like, you know, in the 1870s, I think you said really the cultural genocide began uh, 150,000 kids and uh, young indigenous children in residential schools across the country. The last one closing in 1996 listening to all this made me feel an incredible amount of shame and anger 
and not really knowing what to do. So if you're someone like me, what what do you suggest when when you've you've been so proud, but now you're kind of realizing the real history um, of what is known now as Canada? Like what what would be your suggestion for someone like me? That's a great question. Thank you for that. I think it's coming to terms with being a settler. That identity is difficult. So a settler is someone who is non-Indigenous. Many BIPOC even grapple with that identity because they're BIPOC. But because we're non-Indigenous, we still benefit at the expense and exploitation of Indigenous peoples. So I will say, for example, to my students, I went through this educational system at the expense of Indigenous kids who have been hurt and harmed and abused in the system. So I have a responsibility as a settler to understand my history and our shared history. And that's where I believe it begins. The the education, the self-awareness to to understand that history so that we don't default to those ignorant statements of, well, that happened a long time ago. Or why can't Indigenous peoples just get over it? Because if people understood our history, they couldn't couldn't make those statements. Because as you say, 1996, that wasn't that long ago for the last residential school to close. And getting over it isn't possible if the colonization and the genocide are continuing to impact the communities, the healing process doesn't occur if the behavior continues. And so understanding our settler identity, doing our reading, understanding our history is a really important aspect of being a settler and also getting to know people in Indigenous communities so you can learn from them. Once you've done some of your work, then by all means, approach people for some more learning. Oftentimes people will speak about the impact of emotional labor and BIPOC are approached often, excuse me, to share their knowledge, their lived experience, their expertise. And if that is being done without one's own work, then that is taking advantage of somebody's time and emotional labor. So it's important for everyone to begin by doing the reading and understanding, watching documentaries, having conversations in their circles, and then reaching out to people to learn more, attending sessions, um, taking courses, whatever that might look like um, in terms of learning for each person. And that, that learning is really important. And then understanding that we all have a role that we can play. If we hear somebody making a comment that is stereotypical, then we name it. That sounds like a stereotype. If somebody is wearing a costume at Halloween that is representing a cultural community because culture is not a costume, then we speak up and speak out. So there's ways in which we can speak up and um, step up and sometimes to step back. Sometimes we're in meetings and our voice may be heard and others may not be heard those who are marginalized, and we speak up by saying, I'd like to hear from so-and-so, and you take a step back and you don't take up the space and you amplify the voices of the marginalized people around you. There are many different ways that we can step in if we understand you know, what might be impactful. Um, I think too, like one thing that you mentioned in our first session 
which I thought was really powerful because you talked about stereotypes, even if they're good stereotypes can be just as harmful. And um, I think sometimes people are like, oh, it's not racist if it's a positive thing. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because um, it was, I think, really meaningful and impactful when you said it. Mm, thank you. So a stereotype is a false or general belief about a person or a group that ignores the individual unique characteristics of that person. So imagine, imagine being generalized. Imagine people are assuming you're a certain way just because you have a membership of a particular group. Well, we, we aren't solely defined by our membership in groups. We are all unique individuals that have gifts passions, skills, stretches, whatever it might be. And I, growing up, people mm. often would say, oh, you're so lucky to be Chinese because you are good at math. And I thought that is odd because that's my worst subject. I actually had a mental block <laughs> yeah. in math. So then I started to question, am I supposed to be good at math? What's wrong with me? Why can't I live up to the stereotype? And a stereotype threat also results where people feel the pressure to conform to the stereotype that they've been named to have um, and carry and then they as a result perform poorly and so there is no such thing as a positive stereotype as much as it sounds positive it is still generalizing that you have to be a certain way and that you have to fit a certain mold so instead of Speaking about stereotypes as positive, negative, I simply say that all stereotypes are harmful and hurtful. Yeah, I think that was a, a really good point that I took out of the first session and one that I will um, keep with me, of course. We have run out of time. I have about 45 more questions on, on this page, but you're, you're free. You're free. But um, I just wanted to thank you so much. I will continue uh, the education process. You have been extremely inspiring. I... It has taken me a while to get here, I can say that, but I'm, I'm grateful for the last two years uh, for my own personal development, but for the way it seems a lot of people are heading um, to know more and to no longer sit silent. And um, thank you so much for, for heading this and for having the guts and the thick skin to have these conversations and the patience and um, allowing people to be vulnerable and, and um, unlearn a lot of the things that we've, we've been learning. If you or a team or your company want to book a series of sessions with Angela, you can find her on her Instagram account at hands underscore consulting. One more time, that is at hands, H-A-N-D-S underscore consulting, C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G to book your own education with her on how to be anti-racist. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Three Sides with Erin McLeod. If you are interested in hearing about a certain topic, let me know. You can email me directly at themotivenation1 at gmail.com or my Mindful Project email, erin at themindfulproject.us. Thank you for your presence and for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. 
Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.